Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you. It's good to see you this morning. Um, The sermon I'm going to share with you this morning, I actually wrote to share at Green Valley Church in Zimbabwe. Um, I wrote it for them. It'll make sense when you see what the illustration is. Uh, And then I also got to share it in Wange at Pastor Becky's church. Uh, But the whole time I had in mind that I would get to share it with you as as well. So I finally get to. um, I brought a rock with me this morning. Um, does, this, does this seem special to anyone? Does this look like a, would anyone call this great TK? Is this a great rock or just a rock? It's a great rock? You're undoing my illustration. But <laughs> it's, um, there, it is a great rock. It was made by God, our creator. But there's nothing in particularly special about it. Grace picked it out for me this morning. Thank you, Grace. Um, it is a a rock, um, but could you call this great if a master craftsman picked it up and shaped it and gave it form and created and, and used it as part of a great structure, as part of if he, if, he, if he formed it with millions of other stones and fit them all in place in, uh, in the, the vision of a grand building, would it be a part of something great? Absolutely. It'd go from something that was alone and on the ground to something amazing. So Zimbabwe, the word Zimbabwe, is a Shona word, which is the local language there, that means house of stones. Zimbabwe actually means house of stones. And the reason it got its name is, uh, here's Zimbabwe, southern Africa, landlocked country just north of South Africa. Um, It got its name because there's this place called Great Zimbabwe. On top of this mountain are massive ancient ruins And actually down in the valley, there are ancient ruins as well. And we've gotten to stop there a few times, coming or going. This is Gary. Um, He got, he's our good friend there, um, who planted Green Valley Church. He'd never been to Great Zimbabwe before, even though the nation's named after it. They learn all about it in school. So I got to go with him. And there are quite a few pictures of Gary in Great Zimbabwe, because he was very excited to get his picture taken there. This is the pathway up to the king's residence, the hill complex up on top of that mountain I showed you. Here's the view looking back down. This was a pinch point. It was militarily strategic. It'd be hard to get a lot of people up and down it. Um, You can start to see some stonework over here. The top of the hill is completely covered in stonework that's integrated into the hillside, and it's basically a mountaintop fortress where the king lived. This was built in the like 11th to 15th century, and um, it was a great civilization. There were a lot of people there. This was early in the stonemaking work. Um, the stuff you'll see in a second is a little bit more advanced. There's Jay and Jordan, um, I think, with Gary wandering around. Um, it's amazing to look at this and realize it was built almost a 1,000 years ago and still standing. Uh, this, this, I think, this... Um, lintel or whatever you want to call it, has been rebuilt, but there are all these amazing passageways and stonework. Um, My fearless traveling buddy, you can start to see a structure down there in the valley as well. This is up top. This was part of the king's residence. This is called the Great Enclosure, and you can see stone ruins all scattered throughout here. It was estimated that there were between 10 and 20,000 people that lived in this civilization, all in this one place. The first Europeans that discovered it assumed it couldn't have been built by Africans because that sort of tells you what early Europeans thought of Africans. It's been confirmed it was an African empire that had trade routes all the way up the east coast of Africa into um, the Middle East and even into China. 
So they traded with people all over the world. This is the great enclosure, Gary. Um, National Geographic took a better picture than I could here. So you can see this. This is like 820 feet around. The walls are up to 20 feet thick and 36 feet tall. Um, this little door right here for scale, this is us with Aletta and Avai at that door. So it's this massive, massive uh, enclosure. This picture is on some of their money. That's called the Conical Tower in the middle. Um, Avai's school is actually named the Conical Tower Academy, and it's 30 minutes from Great Zimbabwe, and she'd never been there. So we got to take her to experience it for the first time. Um, and it was really, it was really fun. But how long did this take to build? Every single stone picked up by hand, shaped. They used fire and water to crack them and shape them. And here, this is farther along. You can see how symmetrical and carefully crafted this wall is. How long did that take to build? Every single stone, individually chosen, shaped by hand, set in place, locked in without mortar. There's not mortar in any of these. Occasionally, you'll see a little wedge rock that holds a bunch of stuff together. Each stone playing a part in the plan that the architect had in mind, this master plan. No stone makes a structure, but together at the hands of a craftsman, it was built into something amazing. And before Great Zimbabwe, this was all just scattered rocks, right? And they were great rocks because they were made by God. But there was nothing particularly special about them. But here they are standing hundreds of years later, paying tribute to their civilization, their culture, their builders, their people, and their king, giving glory and honor, essentially, to the people that made them. Um, and it is amazing. And you might say, cool, but why are you talking about rocks and history? This is church. Um, I, I bring this up because maybe you're a step ahead of me. You, just like all these stones, were chosen. You were shaped. You were set in place. You were given a purpose and by the hand of a master that had a plan for you, you were made a part of something bigger than yourself. And, um, but unlike this stone, you are alive. And you are still a work in progress. And, and you can even better glorify the one that has shaped you. So our passage for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, essentially verses 4 through 10. Before I get into that, I'd just like to pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning, the chance to gather and marvel at your word and at your glory. I pray that as we look at your words, um, they would impact our hearts, that we would see you more fully, that we would be connected to you more deeply, that um, we'd be amazed that you love us so much and that though we're imperfect, um, you are perfect. And though um, we don't deserve it, you have drawn us to yourself and made us a part of your plan. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to quiet the distractions in our hearts and minds and focus on your word and what you would have for us this morning. In your name, amen. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you see where I'm going with the illustration now, I, I hope. Um, Grace, in school last year, was actually assigned the task of writing a paper on the theology of biblical stones from 1 Peter 2, which when I heard that assignment, sounded like it would be hard for me. 
So she and I got to work on that together, and as we were reading this, um, I mean, and as we were reading First Peter 2, I thought, wait a second, this sounds just like great Zimbabwe. What an illustration would it be to talk about living stones being built up into something greater, and Zimbabwe actually means house of stones. So you could say that the entire church is Jesus' house of stones, or it's Jesus' Zimbabwe. And then we thought, well, who's the first missionary that went to that's famous for bringing the gospel to Zimbabwe, Livingston, spelled living stone. And anyway, we went down a rabbit hole and really geeked out. It was, it was, it was fun. But um, it's, a, it's a good illustration. It was especially powerful in Zimbabwe because Great Zimbabwe is like their national monument. It's what they're known for. They learn about it in history and it has deep meaning. Probably a little less meaning for you, but still, um, hopefully we can, it'll help us see ourselves in light of 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. So as you come to him a living stone, um, being called a living stone might be, not be the compliment you've always craved, but in this illustration it, it makes sense. You, your, Christ being the living stone, you yourselves like living stones, like little Christs are being built up into the, as a spiritual house. Your holy priesthood offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. No longer dead in trespasses and sins, but made alive by Christ and made a part of his household, the household of God built on him. Matthew Henry says, the church of God is a spiritual house. The foundation is Christ. The builders are ministers and the inhabitant is God. So in 1 Peter 2, 6, verse 6, we see, For as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am lying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So in Isaiah 28, we see the laying of a cornerstone in Zion. This is the foretelling of the coming of Christ, and that Christ would be the foundation of the living temple. Um, Zion, of course, is Jerusalem or the dwelling place of God, and it's foretelling that Jesus is gonna be the first stone in a new temple, a stone not built, or a, a temple not built of stone, but a temple made of Christ and his church. And we see that the church is laid on the foundation of Christ. So a cornerstone is, of course, I've never built a stone house, but we probably get the concept. The first stone you lay is the one that sets the course for all the others. If your first stone is wonky and you base everything off it, your building will be wonky. If you have a perfect cornerstone and all the other stones reference back to it, your building will be square. And that is Christ the cornerstone, that if we reference everything off of him, we, the building will be square. Um, great church name too, by the way, um, which uh, we're not alone in choosing, but uh, that's, that's the whole point, that Christ is the cornerstone, that if we lay everything off of him, um, things will be right, things will be square, that he is the worthy one, he is the perfect one, he is the reference for all else. And Jews would have totally understood this illustration and they wouldn't have liked it because the temple was a big deal to them, right? The physical temple was a big deal to them. But Jesus in his work on the cross overcame sin and death and you'll remember the, the 
curtain to the Holy of Holies was torn in two, and the dwelling place of God that was so holy only priests could go in and only occasionally, through the work of Christ on the cross, was opened up so that all could come to Christ through faith. That the Holy of Holies is no longer this place in the temple, but the Holy of Holies is where Christ dwells, which is actually inside of his people. So we become the Holy of Holies. We become the dwelling place of God by accepting Christ and being made alive by him. And that is where we get the concept of priesthood of all believers, which was mentioned in verse five, um, that we now can go straight to Christ. We have a straight conduit to Christ. We can access God directly at the altar in our hearts instead of going to a building. And the new priests, you know, historical priests made sacrifices at the temple. We no longer make animal sacrifices, but the sacrifice becomes, as we saw in verse five, our own lives. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So there's this doing away with the physical temple and the sort of distance and the desiring to be close to God with the inability to, and we move into this living temple that is a spiritual temple, a spiritual house uh, made up of the living stones that are Christ's church. Okay, so we see though in verses seven and eight um, that there is honor for those who believe, but for those who reject Christ, he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Um, C.S. Lewis has some really good um, essays where he talks about you have to deal with Christ. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? You have to deal with the claims he made. He's either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord, but he's a hard person to ignore. And this, these passages lay out the same thing that um, you have to decide what to do with Jesus. If you accept him, um, it will be for your good. If you reject him, he will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the question is, where are you? What have you done with Jesus? Have you laid your life on him, believing in him and being built up in him and is he your cornerstone? Or have you rejected him and gone your own way and decided he's not Lord? And if so, um, he will be a stumbling stone and will continue to be. Your life will not be complete. You will always be searching. Your sin will be your own, that you will have to atone for yourself. And we see in Matthew 21, 44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, the stone being Christ, the cornerstone. But when it, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So are you still living in darkness? Is your soul dead like this stone? This, this, is, this is the soul of a person who has not received Christ. And if that's true, um, the answer is to turn to him. Repent, put your life on him. See him as the cornerstone and orient your life around him in submission to him. So, but in, in verses uh, nine through 10, for those who have set themselves on Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A chosen race, 
we've, we've, in the history of Cornerstone, this has been a very key passage in understanding who we are and what we're to be about. And so as we just look through that, we pull out a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that there's a reason for it. He has picked us off, off the ground. He has shaped us, formed us, brought us into his household for a reason, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were alone, you stood on your own, you had no future, no spiritual family, no hope, but now you are a people. You've been brought into the family of God, you've been adopted by the Father, you've been given brothers and sisters that we get to fellowship with together here. Once you had not received mercy, you still stood in opposition to God. You were an object of God's wrath because of your sin, which wasn't dealt with, but now you have received mercy through faith in Christ, the mercy that removes our sins and puts them on his shoulders so that we can be restored to fellowship with Christ. We all were dead like this stone, alone, laying on the ground, wherever Grace found it this morning, um, destined for a life of maybe getting kicked, you know, or if it's lucky, thrown into the bottom of the river by Titus. Um, And dead, alone, and unable to change. That is the picture that the scriptures paint of those who are apart from Christ. But he has called you from darkness to light. Um, he, the master craftsman has picked you up, formed you, chosen your place, set you in that place, given you life, that you would walk with him and advance his kingdom. He drew us um, into himself and gives us purpose. So the question for this morning, really the key question is, what is your place? What is your role in the household of God? What are your spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus? And this is, not, um, this is not a guilt sermon. This is not, you're not doing X, Y, and Z, therefore you need to feel bad and do X, Y, and Z. This is not a comparison sermon, like you should be more like that person or, or this person. This is not a coercion, like, you know, we need somebody to mop the floor and nobody's doing it, so I'm gonna do a guilt sermon. Um, I will offer no list of what this looks like, but it's a question between you and the cornerstone, between you and your savior, how do you want me to live? What does it look like for me to live a life of sacrifice? What does it look like for me to walk with you? And that all flows out of, there are two ways to approach that. One is, God called me and he tells me to be like this, therefore I need to be like that or he won't love me. That's wrong. The other is, God called me and he wants, to be like, wants me to be like this because he loves me and this is what he made me for and he gave me the strength to do it and he gave me the power to do it and it's where I will thrive and it might not be what I would choose but he's the authority of my life and I need to listen to him and go to that place. So how, what did you make me for? What is the life that you want for me, Jesus? What does it look like to walk with you in a manner worthy, to walk with you in the way that you want me to because I know you want my good, okay? And I would also say that obviously this is not easy. We live in a fallen world that's broken. Sin still constantly grasps at our legs. Um, life throws all kinds of stuff at us. I'm not saying this is easy. Um, Jesus' life wasn't easy, by the way, but it was good, and he calls us to the same thing. It's maybe not a life that seems easy, but it's good. 
Uh, I'm not focusing on how easy or hard this is, but on how true it is this morning. Like looking at the scriptures, is this what it says? Is it true? Because hardship tends to make us question things, at least in my experience. This is really hard. Is it worth it? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I doing something wrong? Am I in the right place? Um, this path seems narrow. Is this, everyone else is going that way. Is this right? I'm not focusing on whether this is easy or not. I'm focusing on whether it's true or not because truth anchors our feet. If we know we're on the right path, yeah, it's narrow and it's hard, but we're told Jesus is with us. Oh, I see glimmers of that, and this is where I'm supposed to be. If we can see the truth of it, may it compel us to walk in it. So, yeah, what this is, this is a sermon reminding us about what God has called us to. What has he gifted us with? What has he built you for? In 1 Corinthians 12, we see the um, passage about the body and all the members of the body. Um, That all members of the body are vital to the body, the body being the church. That the church isn't complete without any any members. Um, It's incomplete without the least of the members and the greatest of the members do not make it complete. It takes everybody. It is a whole body. Every, every piece is vital to the body. The foot is not a hand. The mouth is not a foot. Um, if the whole body were an eye, that's like a Pixar illustration, you know, where would the sense of hearing be? If, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? That... We can't necessarily see what the Lord has called us to by just looking at somebody else and saying, oh, that must be what I'm supposed to do, Um, or by comparing ourselves to each other. That's not what he's called us to. He's called us to asking, what am I? Lord, what am I? What what is my role in the body? 1 Corinthians 12, 4, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. So to each person is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, and it's in different ways. We're unique. We, no two of us fit the same hole on the, on the, in the great Zimbabwe. Um, so what has the Lord given you to do in his kingdom? He hasn't saved us to do nothing. He hasn't just, you know, we get our salvation and, and we're good. Um, there's something so much more than that so much greater that he's called us to. And you could say, but I'm not, you know, gifted in this way or that way, or I don't know a whole lot about whatever, or, I mean, there's the, the, the what ifs are, are endless, but, um, we're all sufficient because we're all indwelt by the Spirit of God, and he is sufficient for us. So, another passage that's encouraging on that note is, um, to the church, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. So how are you gifted? Are you using those gifts for the church to uplift your local body? Are you using those gifts for the kingdom in your everyday life? Um, And if not, how can you use them? What does being a living sacrifice look like for you? Um, The Christian life is not a spectator sport. And it's not something you come to on Sunday, you sing the songs, you watch. It's not like going to a a football game or something. We're all on the field. We're all in the battle. Uh, 
Um, there are no stands in the Christian life. Uh, we are all in the midst of it, and we are all part of it. And um, Christ wants us to realize that so that we can walk with him and more fully manifest his glory through our lives by his power. So maybe you need to hear this morning, I feel like I'm doing a lot and using my gifts and it's exhausting and sometimes I wonder if it's worth it. You might need to hear, do not become weary of doing good. (laughs) Press into that. It's good. Keep going. You um, You might need to hear, I've thought about helping, but I don't really know how. Ask. Lean into that. I've thought about helping that person. Um, because I, I love them, but I just don't have quite enough space in my life. Ask the Lord about that. Maybe you need to make space to do that thing, to make his glory known. This could manifest in all kinds of different ways, and I won't be prescriptive, but you know your own life. You know your own Lord. What would he have you do? We have been brought into the mission of Christ as he makes his name known and draws people to himself through his church, through his spiritual house. And we can be reminded he doesn't need us for this work. God doesn't need anything. It's not like we're holding him back or he's you know, being thwarted because we're lazy or something. Um, he lets us be a part of what he's doing because he loves us and he wants us to walk with him. He has something for us in walking with him. He has a better life for us, a deeper relationship, a deeper fellowship with him, and he wants us to experience the joy of walking with him, the joy of being filled with his life, of loving people with his love, which is beyond us, of seeing the brokenness of the world around us encounter the gospel and being changed by it, He wants us to see the building up of his living temple, the church, of being a part of his chosen people, changed and set apart from the world, and he wants us to do all of those things with him in relationship with him. So how should we then live? The Francis Schaeffer, Francis Schaeffer, right? Francis Schaeffer question. Okay, so in light of those truths, how should we then live? Conveniently, um, 1 Peter 2, 11, more or less picks up there. So this is the background scripture that Mark read for us this morning. I wanna read this, and can we all just kind of close our eyes or focus or however we do it and try to, to bathe in it, bathe our minds in this passage, this instruction, this um, in 1 Peter, these things are all true, therefore this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Do this and you will please God. For as part of Jesus' spiritual house, his spiritual Zimbabwe, um, you are called to do these things. And uh, you get to proclaim, these things are, 
these things are the therefores. Proclaim his excellencies, receive his mercy, abstain from the passions of the flesh, conduct yourselves honorably, glorify God, be subject to human institutions, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, live as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I ask you again, living stone, what does offering spiritual sacrifice look like in your life? He's brought us from darkness to light, but left us in the world for a purpose. He has set us apart and left us here for a purpose so that by living differently, we can point to him. And so how do we live differently? How do we live in light of the life we have in Christ and the things he's called us to and the way he's empowered us as a parent or as a spouse or a brother or sister or son or daughter or as a friend, a coworker, a community member, a neighbor, a member of this body? How do those ordinary tasks become redeemed with mission purpose in light of walking with Jesus and being changed by him. We've seen from this passage that he has given you meaning, belonging, purpose, honor, freedom, power, mercy, and love. He has chosen you, formed you, placed you. You are precious, and you are capable of ministering with the power of God to a broken world. So, Living Stones, members of the household of God, and it's many of us together, us individually striving and us striving together. Let us live as spiritual sacrifices because of our cornerstone, Jesus Christ, for the glory of our heavenly Father and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word makes it clear to us who you are. It makes it clear to us who we are. It makes, us, makes it clear um, how you've changed us and what you've called us to. And Lord, we all confess we don't do it perfectly, that we have a lot of work to do, but we thank you that it's your power at work in us. And most of what we need to do is let go of ourselves and lean into you. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds to help us ask you, what would you have me do? What would you have me keep doing? What would you have me change? What am I missing How can I be in a closer relationship with you and how can I more experience the fullness of life that you promise, the easy burden that you you give us hope for? So Lord, our hope is in you. Um, I ask that you would help us to glorify you in the mundaneness of our everyday life by shifting the attitude of our hearts from the mundaneness to Um, to glowing with your glory in the midst of the drudgery, the the questions, the uncertainty, physical trials, loss of loved ones, sickness, temptations, addictions, whatever it is, Lord, we know that you're bigger than those things, that you are present at all times with us, and I just ask that you would help us to live lives that are worthy and that you'd help us to be living sacrifices to your glory and to the glory of your church that you may be magnified in your name. Amen.